If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews. We'll be continuing in our study of the book of Hebrews tonight, and we'll be studying chapter 2, specifically verses 5 through 9. But for the sake of context, I want us to begin reading together from verse 1. So again, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Hear now God's holy and inerrant word. Verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and with honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, God, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, oh, what great mystery it is, and yet what a display of perfect love that the Son of God would condescend and become the man of sorrows. So that in him we might have the very word of eternal life. And as we now turn our attentions to that word. We do pray that by the spirit. You would unfold your truths to us. And that you would massage and root it deeply within our hearts. Though finite and simple minded we are. Our hearts long to hear your voice. Speak to us now through the exposition of your word for our good and for your glory alone. We ask these things in the name of your beloved son, Jesus. Amen. The primary concern and the chief focus of the book of Hebrews is not only to proclaim, not only to defend, not only to prove, but to demonstrate the absolute the indisputable 
supremacy of Christ. That he is altogether categorically different from everyone and from everything. To quickly review in chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews clearly lays out for us the qualifications of Jesus and the why he is who he is. Specifically, why Christ is the divine Son of God. In verse 1, he begins, we read, that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken by his Son. Meaning, Jesus is the very incarnation, the physical manifestation of God's Word spoken. John 1, you guys know this. When we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Furthermore, the writer of Hebrews, he builds upon Jesus' qualifications by describing him to be the one who, is, who, who made the worlds, the one who is uh, the brightness and the express image of God. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, in considering all of this, the one thing that we need to get absolutely right here is that all of these things that, was just, that were just mentioned don't necessarily qualify Christ to be the Son of God as much as he is already all of these things because he is the Son of God. Let me put it another way. Being the radiance or the effulgence of God's glory isn't what makes the Son divine. But because He is the Son of God, He by nature radiates and shares that same eternal and divine nature with God the Father. Being the express image of God's glory isn't what makes the Son God But the Son is the express image of the Father's glory because He is God. This to say that the Son of God was not made. He was not created. He was not adopted. He was not a second thought. But He, since eternity past, always was. He's God. As we read before, with Athanasius and with the Nicene Creed. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. This is what we call here simple Trinitarianism, that God, in essence, is without parts, that there is no composition to be found in the Trinity. All that is in God is God. And very much in the same theme that uh, the writer goes on to demonstrate then the superiority of the Son over angels. Pastor Dave preached on those passages in the past two midweeks. While chapter 1 focuses on the qualifications of the Son, chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 focuses on the admonition given to the saints of God. And what we find here today in our passage, verses 5 through 18, is a transition from admonition to exposition. Now, because we'll be spending the next two weeks in examining uh, the rest of chapter 2 together, I want to make very clear from the get-go 
Now, for us in the main point of this chapter, I want to establish the main point of chapter 2. So in the backdrop of Hebrews' grand theme of the supremacy of Christ, chapter 2 can be summed up in this way. Hear it now. The theme of chapter 2 is this. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men, us included, can become the sons of God. Now let me unpack that a little bit more because it sounds a little bit like a riddle. What I mean is this. The Son of God, the divine Son of God, condescended, he became the Son of Man and wrapped himself in humanity so that sons of man, men rather, namely humans, us, can then become in and through Christ sons of God. And so what we have here presented to us in this overarching theme of Hebrews and what the writer is now presenting to us and defending in our passage today is this. It's that Christ's superiority is not canceled, is not diminished, is not reduced nor hindered by him coming to us in the form of man. And that to die for sinners. Rather, I believe that it would be right for us to actually say that it was necessary for, and it had to be, God the Son who condescended into human flesh so that he could die in the grand narrative of God's plan of redemption. But we'll go to expound on that more later. Now, the reason for why the author of Hebrews shifts from the deity of Christ in chapter 1 to the humanity of Christ in chapter 2 is most likely because, as many commentators have stated, is because, being that the writer is writing to to a Jewish audience, he was well aware of an objection that was most likely to arise in the minds of his listeners. They're most likely to think, okay, You presented this Jesus to be the divine son of God. We see, okay, we'll accept that he's superior. We'll accept that he's deity. But the big problem that we have is how can you say all those things when this Jesus guy, who you said again, who is divine, how can you say he's God when he sounds like us? When he looks like us? He looks like me. How can you say that he's divine, that he's the, the son of God when he speaks the same language as me. He eats the same food as me. Now, the question is, how are we to make sense of all of this? What we would most likely see here in the Jewish mind and the Jewish thinking, and perhaps some some of you in here as well tonight, is the great disconnect between the divinity of Christ from the humanity of Christ. And going back to the theme of chapter 2, our passage for today deals with this very question of why the Son of God became the Son of Man. Why the Son of God coming in the form of man didn't hinder his superiority, but reflected and magnified it. So we'll unpack that. Turn your attentions now to verse 5 and let's begin going through our passage. Verse 5, we read, For 
God did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. The word for, as many of you already know, is a conjunction word that's used to express cause. It's, it's used to introduce a statement that explains why a preceding statement is true. So what the writer of Hebrews is communicating here is, looking back to verses 1 through 4, is saying, pay close attention to what you have heard. Do not drift away. Do not neglect so great a salvation. Why? What's the reason here? What's the cause? We read verse 5. For, because, God did not subject to angels the world to come. Huh. What does that even mean? I have to confess. I don't know. (laughs) I began studying this passage and I read this verse hundreds and hundreds of times because I just couldn't get it. What does the writer mean by saying, for God did not subject to angels the world to come? And how does this exactly connect or give reason for verses 1 through 4? It almost seems like initially that these two portions of text to be completely unrelated. It says, pay close attention to what you have heard. Do not drift away. Do not neglect so great a salvation. Why? For because God did not subject to angels the world that's to come. Again, what does this mean? I believe answering this question with two sub-questions will hopefully serve us in bringing some clarification as to what this means. And the two questions are these. First, what is the world to come? What is that? And second, if God did not subject the world to come to angels, then who did he subject it to? Who is to rule? First, what is the world to come? First question. What's interesting here is that the typical word that's often used for world, cosmos, where we get our word cosmos or cosmology, is not used in this verse. Rather, if we look at the Greek, the word that we find used here is a very specific kind of word. And it sounds like this, akumene, oikumene, which literally translates to the inhabited earth. Now, you might be even more confused here. Follow along. What this means is that there is a specific inhabited earth that's to come in the future. This is not referring to this present earth, this earth presently in this fallen condition that it's in, because we know that this earth is promised to pass away. In Revelation 21, we read, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Which is to say then that this world that's to come, referred to in verse 5, is looking forward to a specific future earth, a redeemed earth, if you will, that's to be inhabited when the lordship of Christ is consummated. Now with that answered, second question, then who is to rule and subject this world to come? We read here in verse 5, obviously not the angels, so who? We find the answer 
in the writer's use of Psalm 8. We read here in verse 6, he quotes Psalm 8, if you want to follow along. Verse 6, he writes, But someone has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Now to very simply answer this question, who is to rule the world? We read here that man, lowercase m, man, humanity, not angels, men are to rule and subjugate this future inhabited earth that's to come. Now that I'm answering these questions out loud, I I don't know if this actually helped you or not, but I hope that it did in one way or another. But we are still left with the question of what does all of this mean? Now before we go any further, I want to quickly note the very strange decision here that the writer of Hebrews chooses in introducing Psalm 8. And some of you might have already caught it in the way I read it. But the author writes here, but someone has testified somewhere. Now, that's a very strange way to introduce a quote or even a psalm, especially by someone who has such a high view of Scripture. And remember, the epistle was written to a Jewish audience. So in quoting Psalm 8, everyone who was reading this epistle or hearing this epistle, going through their their Jewish brains, as it were, they knew exactly what psalm this was. The listeners knew exactly what psalm was being quoted here. And even more so, they probably even knew who the psalmist was, which was David. And so why in the world would the writer of Hebrews choose to write what he wrote? Why not just say, in the words of the psalmist David, he says, dot, dot, dot. Now this would be equivalent to me saying, if if I were to go around And I said, oh, someone has told me, someone somewhere has told me that E equals MC squared. People would look at me strange and they would say, why not just say Albert Einstein? It was Albert Einstein. Why did you say it like that? So again, what's the point? What's the writer of Hebrews trying to get here by doing and by writing what he did? Was it because he didn't know? Was it because he, for some reason, was trying to get under his readers' skin? To irk them a bit, perhaps? Maybe to, I don't know, to his downfall? Did he have some kind of sudden episode of amnesia? Did he just forget? No. Rather, I believe what we find the writer doing here is something masterful. If you've noticed, throughout all of chapter 1 and 2, in quoting all of the Old Testament passages, we see that the writer never once makes any mention of any human author, himself included. There's a reason for why the author of Hebrews is so highly debated and discussed today. It's because no one knows. Which is the point. No one knows. That's the point. Whoever penned Hebrews is not doing all of this to remain a mystery. He's not doing all this to incite good conversations or debates. 
but he's intentionally doing this to grab our attentions and redirect them upwards. He does all this to eliminate any trace of human authorship and human instrumentation to to force us to look up, to listen to not the words of man, but to listen to the word of God. There's a reason for why the writer begins this whole epistle by stating that God has spoken, that he has spoken to us by his Son, Because at the end of the day, it wasn't David who spoke. It wasn't Paul who spoke. It wasn't Luke who spoke. But it's God who speaks. He's saying, don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. I'm just a man. Don't take my word for it. But listen to God. Hence the reason for why he redirects our attentions to Psalm 8. He quotes Psalm 8. To allow God to speak for himself through his word. Now with all that said, the question still remains. I haven't answered the question. How does verse 1 through 4 connect to verse 5? How are we to make sense of, of this connection? And how are we to bridge these two portions of scripture together? What is, what is God trying to teach us here? How is God not subjecting the world to come to angels, how is that reality to translate and apply into our lives? How is that truth to compel us and move us and fuel our excitement to such an extent that we would then give greater heed to God's word to not drift away, to not neglect so great a salvation in Christ Jesus? Again, look at verse 6. In quoting Psalm 8, we read this. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 is putting on full display this marvelous, this amazing dichotomy that exists in God's creation of man. On one hand, we see the sheer insignificance of man, while on the other, we see the exaltation and the glory of man. One commentator, this man by the name of Homer Kent, he beautifully writes it and puts it like this. He writes, Psalm 8 is the psalmist's reflection upon man in the light of creation around him and of God's dealings with him. When viewed in relation to the starry universe, man seems to be but a tiny speck. Yet when man is considered in the light of what God has done for him and what prerogatives God has given to him, The answer to the psalmist's question can only be man must possess from his creator an essential greatness in view of God's actions towards him. For man has been made as the crown of God's creation and was to exercise dominion over all the rest of creation. Said in another way, humanity, us, as created by God, 
is a walking paradox of insignificant yet significant. Small yet one who bears incredible dignity that's, be- that's been bestowed upon him by God. Gloriously made in the image and the likeness of the triune Godhead, yet nothing more than a speck in relation to the universe. And you don't have to be a Christian to know this. Let me ask you a quick question. Like the psalmist, have you ever sat in silence just gazing up in the night sky? Staring at the stars and staring at the the galaxies? Have you ever sat on the beach and looked out into the vast oceans, the bodies of water that just seems to be limitless? Or how about this one? Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? I have. I recommend it if you haven't. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, if you just stand there and you look out at everything, how does it make you feel? It makes you feel small. You feel insignificant. You're simultaneously caught up in the the beauty of the canyons, yet also caught up in how small you are. You're simultaneously amazed yet humbled. And the thought that never runs through anyone's minds as they stand there looking at the grandeur of the canyons is, wow, I'm pretty, I'm pretty great. I'm pretty, I'm pretty big. I'm something else. You don't think like that when you're at the Grand Canyon. And if you do think like that, you've got some major issues that you've got to work out of your heart. I remember as a young boy, my pastor, sitting right there, used to say to me, we don't go to the Grand Canyon to increase our self-esteem. We go there to be humble. And so the psalmist rightfully paints a picture here of man's insignificance in verse 6. But what's fascinating here is that immediately following in verse 7, what we find is that rather than continuing on about the littleness of man, the psalmist transitions to the celebration of the majesty of man as the pinnacle of God's creation, as, as the one crowned with glory and honor, as the one appointed over the works of God's creation. This to say that God created man, though little he may be, to rule and have dominion over creation as God's vice regents. Genesis one twenty seven puts it in this way. We read, and it might come to your mind, we read in verse 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And this is the point I'm getting to, and here it is. And then he goes on and he says, Fill the earth and what? Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Or as Psalm 8 puts it right here in our context, he writes, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. And now some of you listening to all this and reflecting upon all this might be thinking to yourselves, I like the sound of this. 
Sounds good. I like it. It's positive. It's optimistic. But then you kind of pause and you start thinking to yourself a little bit more and you begin to recognize, well, if we're to be rulers, how come I don't feel like a ruler? If we're to subdue the earth, how come more often than not I feel like I'm the one who's being subdued? Why is that? Why is that? Verse 8, look down with me. Verse 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But, here's the transition, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now why is that? Because sin. You want to know why you don't feel like a ruler? It's because you're a wreck. You want to know why man isn't a conqueror? It's because he's a carcass. You want to know why man is not a sovereign? It's because man is dead in sin. You want to know why you don't feel like you've been crowned with glory and honor as God has made man? Why you don't feel like the pinnacle of of God's creation? It's because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 I think we can all agree that when we look out on man and when we reflect upon ourselves, we can all agree that man, because of sin, our love for sin, our inclination for sin, is not subjugating everything, but rather more often than not that many things are subjugating man. So what's the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at by quoting Psalm 8? What is he trying to say to us here? He's simply saying this. Man who was created in the image and likeness of God as the pinnacle of creation, as vice regents who are made to rule and subjugate creation, this original purpose and design of man was frustrated and flipped upside down by sin. That man, rather than choosing a crown of glory and honor, chose rags of sin and death. Psalm 8 celebrates not as fallen man is in the now, in the present, but Psalm 8 celebrates man who was created to be in the beginning. Psalm 8 celebrates man as man ought to have been as created by God. Now taking a quick pause to again go back to that same question that we have yet to answer. You probably think, why aren't you answering the question? Just say it. The question of how is this portion of text, how is this four that we see in verse 5, how is this for, this passage to fuel and strengthen and give reason for why the Christian should take and is to take earnest heed of God's word? Why is the believer to take hold of so great a salvation and not drift away? In light of Psalm 8, you might now, now be thinking to yourselves, well, after presenting this question, after going through Psalm 8, 
I don't think it looks very optimistic for me. As a matter of fact, all of this just sounds like bad news, dark news. So where's the good news? Where's the positives? Where's the optimism? Where's the good news? If we do not yet see all things subject to man, what is it that we see? What can we see? What should we see as Christians? Verse 9, we read, But we do see him, capital H, him, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Why? Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. While verses 6 through 8 demonstrate what man ought to have been, what man was originally created by God to be, and the end of verse 8 bringing into focus the present reality of sin and death, we now see a drastic transition taking place here in verse 9. From him, lowercase h, referring to man, referring to humanity, now to him, capital H, Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. We read here that Jesus came for a little while lower than the angels so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, how is fallen humanity to be re redeemed? How is man to, to remove his curse of death? How is man then to be saved from sin? How is man to be restored back to what God had originally created him to be? The answer, verse 9, Jesus. And how did Jesus achieve this? How did he accomplish this? We read, by becoming for a little while lower than the angels. By condescending and taking upon himself humanity. By becoming man. The creator becoming creature. Now church, this is something that we need to get absolutely right in understanding the deity and the humanity of Christ. In, under, in understanding the importance and the great necessity of Christ taking upon himself human flesh, we need to get this right. While chapter 1 focuses on highlighting, highlighting the supremacy of Christ as the divine Son of God, we see here in chapter 2 that same supremacy of Christ now reflected in his, his humanity. And I want you to notice, after all that's been said about the Son of God to this point, I want you to notice that this is the very first time we see the second person of the Trinity referred to as Jesus, his human name. One commentator appropriately writes this, the name by which God's Son is here called is that of his humiliation, his condescension, condescension. Jesus is not a title, for Jesus was his human name as man here on earth. It was to this name, Jesus of Nazareth, that his enemies ever referred him to. The writer of Hebrews intentionally refers to God the Son here 
as Jesus to highlight not only his humanity, but I would go as far as also saying the necessity of his humanity. It was necessary for God the Son, God the Creator, to become creature in order to, verse 9, to suffer and to die. Why? 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 So that he might taste death for everyone. Anselm, the 11th century bishop of Canterbury, in his work, Cur Deus Homo, he writes, the title is, Why God Became Man. He writes in it, he writes it in this way, and I, I love the way he puts it. I'm going to read it very slowly so you can uh, really take it in, but he writes this. He says, It would not have been right for the restoration of human nature to be left undone. It's a strange way to put it. And he writes, And it could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it to God, it is only God who can pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus, it was necessary for God to take upon himself manhood into the unity of his person so that he, namely fallen humanity, who in his own nature ought to pay and could not pay, should be found in a person who could. The life of this man, Jesus, was so sublime, so precious, that it can suffice to pay what is owing for the sins of the whole world and infinitely more. That's amazing. Paul says it in this way in Galatians 4. Four to five, he writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men can become sons of God. The condescension of Christ was necessary to accomplish God's perfect plan of redemption to save sinners, to save the likes of you, to save the likes of me. And it must be made very clear, my friends, that this condescension did absolutely nothing to take away or hinder his supremacy, but rather it was him coming in the form of man that merely reflected his, his supremacy. In other words, Christ coming in the form of man didn't make him superior, but it's because of the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ that he then volitionally came in the form of lowly man to save and redeem sinners to himself, you see. Christ becoming man did not make him less than, Christ becoming man did not make him less than angels as many heretics have tried to claim through these verses. Even the angelic hosts knew this. The angels, not for one iota of a second, considered the condescension of Christ to be something to be held against him. 
They never looked upon the humanity of Christ as something that took away from his divinity. Now how do we know this? As a babe in a lowly manger, what were the angels doing? Were they looking down at Jesus and saying, you're so small, little Jesus? Were they mocking Jesus? Were they scolding Jesus for doing what he did? No. We read in Luke 2.12, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And here it is. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. What we find here, we find the angels Worshipping Jesus. We find the angelic hosts breaking out in a heavenly chorus. Their mouths filled with songs of praise. Worshipping the God in flesh. Now again, here we go. Going back. The question that we presented in the beginning. How is this portion of text? Just answer the question. How is this portion of text, this 4 in verse 5, to fuel and revitalize and strengthen and give reason for why the Christian believer is to take hold of so great a salvation and not drift away? And we find the answer right here in front of us as clear as day. Verse 9. But we do see who? Jesus. Jesus. It's because we see Jesus. We see this Jesus who is made for a little while lower than the angels. This Jesus who suffered and died. We, we see this Jesus, the Christos who tasted and overcame and defeated sin. The Messiah who put death to death. The God-man who by his own volition offered up his own life to satisfy the wrath of God. It's because of this Jesus Friends, just as we learned this past Lord's Day, that it is solely God alone who can restrain God, that it's only omnipotent power that can restrain omnipotent power. Friends, in the same divine thread of thought here, it is only God the Son who can satisfy the wrath of God the Father. Pillar Baptist Church, we're admonished to take heed of God's word, to obediently stay the course of faith and to never neglect so great a salvation we have in Christ. Why? Why? For, because we see Jesus. Why? Why? For, because the Son of God who became the Son of Man so that the sons of men can become the sons of God in and through his life, his death and resurrection. That's why. Now, before we come to close, I want to briefly address those of you in here who have yet to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want to address you unbelievers if you're in this room with us now. I want to address you for a brief moment. 
what we have here in our passage today in verse 6 is perhaps the greatest question regarding anthropology. The question of what is man? This is a question that has come across, or if not already come across, will come across the mind of every man, woman, and child. This is a question that cannot be ignored, cannot be avoided, can't be shoved underneath the the carpet or rug. But this is a question that will continue to linger and peck at you and seek you out until you find an answer. If man is not found in Christ, unbeliever, I ask you this night, then what is man to you? Perhaps like Aristotle, you might believe that man is nothing more than a social animal, nothing more than a rational beast. Perhaps like Marx, that man is nothing more than a natural being with natural power to be exercised to produce goods for social and individual satisfaction. But friends, unlike the many opinions and, and the many thoughts and Again, opinions of of man in, in, in this world. We see here in Hebrews that God has spoken. God, He has spoken to us with great surety through His authoritative word. And in His word, He says to us that man is in sin. We read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And because of sin, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We, in our sinfulness, have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, Romans 1.25. Because we have chosen our rags of sin over the crown of glory, this has not only caused a great and eternal rift between God and man, but we are utterly guilty and sinful, depraved through and through. This to say that man is not only insignificant, but man is iniquitous. Man is not only unsubstantial, but man is unsavable, left alone to himself. Man is not only hopeless, but man is helpless. Man is not only lame, but man is lost. But dear friends, God, in his gracious love and mercy, did not leave us to ourselves. But he gives to you this day great news. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. Oh, unbelieving friends with us tonight, let me plead with you to take a brief moment to take hold of such a Savior. Run to Jesus. Set your eyes See, Jesus, put your faith in the promise of so great a salvation that's found in the Son of God and in Him alone. Nothing can keep you or cut you off from this promise of salvation that He will indeed save you if you would but place your faith in Him except for your own unbelief. If you are at this moment without Jesus, you are with full assurity, at this very moment, still subjugated by sin and death. You must look to Christ. Again, unbelievers, do you not want to be free from such a bondage of sin? 
Do you not want to know what it truly means to be man? To be man in the fullest sense. In the sense that God had meant for us, for you to be. Beloved, may I ask for the final time that when you find yourself heading home tonight, as you drive home or as you sit in the silence of your car, I want you to take a brief moment and to look up into the night sky tonight. And I want you to reflect upon what is man. Meditate upon the glory of God's majesty. Meditate upon God's holiness. Reflect upon your own exceeding sinfulness and remember that up there, seated upon the throne, is the Son of Man in glory. And that that man is the measure of God's thoughts concerning you. That though insignificant, God was mindful of us and that he manifested his love and remembrance toward us by sending his own beloved son to taste death on our behalf so that we might live. Oh, what a glorious yet humbling, what magnificent yet humbling thing to know that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men, so that we, so that you and me might become sons of God. Let's pray. O Lord and creator of all things, there is but one thing that deserves our greatest care And one thing that calls forth our deepest desires, that is, that we may answer the great end for which we have been made to glorify you. Lord, we confess that we are so often and so easily distracted by the temporary vanities of this life. Yet whenever we find ourselves being drawn away or enticed by the darkness of this world and of sin, Help us, we pray, to recall and confess the words of the writer of Hebrews. But we see Jesus. But we see Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray these things in the name of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, and to the glory of the Father, one in three, and three in one. Amen.